Welcome back to Crazy Faith Talk. I'm Steve. I'm Sarah. And I'm Erica. So friends, it's so good to be back with you today. Um, we are still in our our series about denominations. What are they? Why do we have them? What good things do we get from them? And also, what things do we just kind of have to live with because it's part of being part of a denomination? So where are we going to going to today? So today we're going to talk about some of the bigger challenges of denominations. And that is when denominations tend to split apart, when congregations split apart. And sometimes the challenges of different denominations even coming together to form a new denomination, because that's a, a challenge in its own right that's very different and seems something that should be more joyful but depending on how agreeable people are to that coming together, um, it may be a challenge in itself. Um, so each of our denominations have some background in coming together and, and splitting apart and coming together and splitting apart. Um, so we're going to be looking at our own denominations and just the church as a whole and see how we kind of got to where we are today. I appreciate the way you laid that out, Erica, and and especially that notion that, uh, you know, here each of us are representing different branches of Protestantism. So our, our traditions exist because of people being able to break away from other existing bodies. And yet both of our traditions that are represented around our imaginary table here, the United Methodist Church is a product of a merger um, and uh, the Methodist Episcopal and the United Brethren. Is that right? Um, United Evangelical. Evangelical United Brethren. Okay. Uh, and the, the ELCA, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, is the product of a merger of other Lutheran bodies. Um, and that, as you said so helpfully, not only can schisms and splits be heartbreaking, but there can sometimes be tensions in mergers. And uh, maybe it's worth saying, too, that sometimes splits are the least unhealthy of all the options in front of you, too, in, in a mm-hmm. way like and I, I, I know this, this may be an uncomfortable thing to say, but my guess is each of us have worked with enough families and marriage situations in, in congregational life to know that divorces and families are often heartbreaking, but sometimes it's the least worst option. And that marriages, while they are generally joyful, sometimes you just sort of look at a marriage and go, oh, this is going to present so many challenges because this couple is going to have to deal with this or this or this or this. And you wish them well, but mm, there's going to be lots of stuff they have to work on. And maybe if we can say in family life, divorce is uh, often very difficult, but sometimes it is the least worst option around. And in, and the joyful occasions are great, but also tinged with bittersweetness that church life as well in mergers that feel like marriages and in splits that feel like divorces, sometimes all the options are bittersweet. <laughs> and, and I think though also divorce as well as denominational or congregational splits is Sometimes it mirrors the Christian life in the fact that only through death can we have resurrection and new life. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes, yeah, divorce, splitting up of congregations and denominations is heartbreaking, Mm -hmm. right? But through that death of that relationship, can there be a promise of new life Mm -hmm. and new relationship? So 
yeah, I think it's definitely one of those things that divorce splitting up of congregations or denominations is so hard. Yeah. But also I I trust enough in the good news of Jesus that it's there can be new life. Yeah. And maybe that that's a helpful way to stake out some ground for this conversation, that it could be tempting in a shallow way to say, uh, OK, well, all church splits are bad. Like we were supposed to always think all divorces are bad. Well, wait a second. Sometimes, you know, you look at a situation, and you go, yeah, th- this relationship is just unhealthy and dysfunctional. And yet not to say every split you know, whatever side you are on must be um, unwaveringly and perfectly the side of right and truth. And, you know, all the other people are the bad heretics. Sometimes uh, we are tempted to paint ourselves as the noble soul bearers of truth and the people we don't like or are splitting away from as all evil and bad. And that's not really, there's, there's going to be a certain inescapable gray to this conversation instead of all black and all white. Now, I'm kind of curious to go back for a second for history and Mm -hmm. the mergers that created the UMC and the ELCA, the two denominations that we represent here today. Um, So I know that the ELCA, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, formed in 1988. And I know this because that's the year I was born. Um, So, like, I never knew any of the former... bodies of lutheranism that formed the elca mm-hmm. my home congregation um was started as a mission start in the early 90s so like i have zero background with the lca or the alc which formed to create the elca like i just i don't have that background mm-hmm. um but i am less familiar with the history of the united methodist church um when did that form So that formed in 1968 with the merger of the Evangelical United Brethren Church and the Methodist Episcopal Church. Um, And I've just recently learned, because I'm kind of where I'm serving now, I'm in the backyard of what was the hub of the EUB. Um, Johnstown, PA was kind of the hub of the Evangelical United Brethren Church, hence why there's six billion United Methodist churches (laughs) in the Johnstown area. But that also was like a merger of a couple of different um, churches. But yeah, so it's been around long before I, I, I came around. I was born in 83. So um, <clears throat> I've only ever known the United Methodist Church. Um, but since that was still within living memory of some of our older congregation members. Oh, absolutely. Do, yeah. you, do you still like when you enter into a new congregation, a new community, can you still kind of pick out that flavor of what that congregation was before the merger? Not really. Um, until they tell me, or I notice like a corner, like, the building's old enough and there's a cornerstone that says like EUB and a date or ME and a date. Um, I don't know uh, because like in our, in our book of discipline, um, under the Articles of Religion in the very beginning, um, we have articles from both denominations, like stating their their belief systems, and they're not terribly different mm-hmm. um, from what I have read and, and what I have studied in seminary. I'll be honest, I probably didn't pay as much attention as I should have in Methodist <laughs> history. Uh, <laughs> and God bless my professor, he's gone on to be with Jesus. Uh, but... Um, 
like there's not a whole lot of i think it was more like a polity mm-hmm. difference and maybe some like, little tangible like little tiny yeah. theology differences but i think that's what made it such a seemingly smooth right. merger right um that now what 50 years later or so you don't really see you don't still hear about of course it is it, it's been 50 years mm-hmm but you don't really hear that except, you know, people say, well, we used to be EUB, you know, we were Methodist Episcopal. And honestly, the folks that tell me who they were before the merger, they're mostly EUB churches. <laughs> it, it's interesting. <clears throat> like the, the, there are, there are relatively broad umbrellas that both the UMC and ELCA have, at least as far as you can find folks who might identify as, high church and low church Methodists and high church and low church Lutherans. And that there are some uh, of in both of our traditions that tend to be much more interested in uh, liturgical precision and, and, and others that are much more sort of low key. And that those, so it's not that those differences don't exist, but maybe they aren't bound geographically or to those old church um, uh, bodies anymore. But now there's like people who had those roots and now they're floating around and we've been intermixing for long enough that you'll still find that variety, but now it may not be only tethered to whether the, the congregation you are currently in historically was one thing or the other. Um, but I mean, that, that's an interesting piece to, to look at, too, is, is in our conversation today, we're looking at how churches decide how much sameness is necessary and how much difference is necessary. We each are in traditions that have been OK with living with uh, difference together. You know, the differences, whatever they were, that uh, were able to be overcome to become the United Methodist Church and the differences that um, were able to be overcome to become the ELCA. Um, and yet we also know what it's like in our traditions to ha- come to a point of here's a line of nope on this line we are separate so you know Lutherans look back 500 years to getting kicked out at the Diet of Worms and Martin Luther you know at, at that point it's pretty clear when you're excommunicated we, we are parting ways um, uh, and this is part of the difficult conversation I think that that maybe we've been sort of headed toward in this whole series is that uh, as as church people there are times when we see little differences that we all can agree. Okay. We, we may not all agree on the color of the carpet, but we, we all love Jesus. We can work together. And then there are other things that are so big and so monumental. If you've lost this, you've lost Christianity. Uh, and I can wish you well, but we're not the same. Um, but then there's these middle places that we often uh, thought we could get along and either we can't or something arises and becomes a flashpoint issue that we can no longer be in company with. And part of what's so heartbreaking about uh, the, the ways that denominations continue to split and fragment and be in dysfunction with each other is those middle places where we can't even agree what things we have to agree on, you know? We, we we started at the beginning of this series, taking that sort of broad brushstroke whirlwind tour of Christian history. And, and we had talked about how you had mentioned even, Sarah, at the very, very beginning in the New Testament itself, you get evidence that there were fractures or fragments in, in groups within early Christianity. Sometimes it was along lines of, you know, more sort of Jewish oriented or Gentile oriented or um, uh, what what pastor or apostle had been there, you know, important founding figure. Um, and you can see some tensions within the New Testament itself. And then those early centuries, everybody could agree maybe uh, by the time they got to like the Council of Nicaea, the question of Jesus is one of those we got to be clear on. And so even though the 
position that got ruled heretical, the Arius position got ruled heretical, at least all the parties at the Council of Nicaea could say, this question is so important, we, we really do need to have clarity. Um, but part of the challenge, it seems like, in contemporary American life, and maybe in, in worldwide Christianity, is that there are these middle-level questions that some people think we can disagree and still be together on, and the other people are like, we can't, if we can't agree on this, we can't be together. And that's a whole other level of heartbreaking because it's like, we, we don't even agree whether this is important enough for us to part company on, or uh, if this is one we need to find ways to live together with. And that, that makes it difficult. Um, it makes it difficult to have conversation within congregational life, not to mention from one congregation to another or with a wider denomination. So I can speak primarily from the perspective of the ELCA and the recent splits that it has experienced, mm -hmm. right? Because the ELCA formed in 1988, not that long ago. Um, but yet in the creation of the ELCA, part of the merger conversation was it was potentially going to be three bodies coming together to form the ELCA. But then one Lutheran body decided, no, we can't agree on some of these, what we believe is fundamental points of theology, mm -hmm. um, which was primarily the ordination of women. Missouri Synod Lutheran Church of America very much does not support ordination of women. So I'm not even sure if that was necessarily a split because they technically were never part of they they never came together in the ELCA. Right. But yet it still feels like a split because there was a moment where all of the or the big Lutheran bodies in the United States were going to come together. But yet they didn't. Yeah. So then throughout the last 33, 34 years, it's very much been it seems like, oh yes, they're the Lutherans in America are the ELCA and the Missouri Senate. Um, and so like, that's such a weird thing for me that we were never really together. We were in conversation. We had the potential of being together, but then when we had the hard and fast, no, we're never going to be together. Mm -hmm. It felt like a split, even though it wasn't. Yeah. Yeah. And there were folks not to get too into the weeds in American Lutheran history, which can be as boring as anything for people who don't speak, uh, Lutheran history. Um, but there were some folks uh, around the time of the merger that became the ELCA who were kind of disaffected with the uh, uh, Missouri Synod's refusal to ordain women who kind of left that group and became a third group that became part of the ELCA. They were the, get ready for it, the AELC, the, I don't know, like American evangelical like it's like there were there were there were three groups that came to be the elca and some of them were kind of missouri synod exiles who were like yeah we're leaving missouri synod because we do want to see the ordination of ordination of women um and so they they did become a part of the the so yeah it is alphabet soup and it's confusing and it's difficult but you you've, you raise a good case study of um sometimes the the baggage that our traditions bring that sometimes what was a uh a feature 500 years ago gets incorporated into the DNA that doesn't need to be carried on. Like, so 1500 or yeah, 500 years ago in the 1500s in the Roman Catholic church that Martin Luther lived in and then broke apart from in some ways, um, 
women were not ordained by and large in the medieval Catholic Church. They would come to a point where the the, the <laughs> Roman Catholic polity's decision was women were not to be ordained. And so for a long time in Lutheranism, women were not ordained. And then there came a point when some Lutherans said, wait a second, let's read the scriptures again. Wait, there were leaders in the Old Testament and New Testament who were women, and there were women who were considered apostles. And there's women who were, you know, announcing and preaching Easter sermons. Of course, women should be able to be uh, ordained. And there were others who were like, no, for 500 years, we've been saying, no, are you, you know, trashing our legacy and our denomination's history and all this by now ordaining women that like, that 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 feature wasn't one of the deciding issues of Martin Luther in the 1500s. His his movement wasn't about women shouldn't be ordained. It was about salvation, you know, justification by grace through faith. And it came out of a time when women were not ordained. And it's interesting, like what pieces of that legacy you carry on is this is what we have to preserve into the future. So there are Lutherans who say, for a long time, we didn't ordain women. We've never done it as a church body, so we never can. And others who have said, okay, this wasn't a part of 500 years ago's conversation with Martin Luther, but it probably should have been. And if we go back far enough, we discover, yeah, women were leaders, so they should be able to be leaders again. But like, this is one of those places where the issues of an earlier generation become like dead weight or a baggage for us in the, in the present moment. I wonder if each of you can, can uh, talk about your experience as pastors uh, of of either congregations that have lived through the scars of of like uh, denominational splits or struggles in the past, or congregational splits, because sometimes that happens, or people who have um, in their own individual life, maybe by being affiliated with different churches over their lifetime, had sort of been burned by bad experiences in one denomination or another. What, what is it like in, from your pastoral care perspective to deal with the way denominations cause harm or can cause um, stress for people? How, how does that, how does that affect you in, in a pastoral sense? So my last appointment, when I first moved there, um, I was trying to find a place that had like a midweek service or, or a Sunday evening service or whatever that I could just go and be a worshiper. And there happened to be a church right behind my house, like walking distance behind my house. So I was asking my parishioners about that. And I found out that that church that was right behind the parsonage was actually split off the church I was serving. Mm. Um, they had had, and I don't know the full history. I, I know bits and pieces of it, never really pressured anybody for the full history of it. They had had a fire in the early 80s, and I think at that time there was a group that really didn't care for the pastor, and so the fire was kind of their excuse to be like, hey, we're going to leave the church because mm-hmm. there's no building, and you know we're going to kind of go and form this other church. Mm-hmm. Um, and honestly, since that church that was behind the parsonage form, like there was kind of this, I don't want to say animosity, but like they didn't always play nice well with the other churches in the town. Mm-hmm. And Steve, you know that from like our community vacation Bible schools and things. Yeah. You know, we played well with the Presbyterians up on the Hill and, and with your church, Steve, but like that other church, we tried to invite them, tried to, and it just, for whatever reason, didn't really yeah. play nice together. Yeah. Um, and so they, they, nobody really ever spoke poorly of that church. We had guys from that church come and play dartball in the basement of our church. Um, so, like, I don't think the animosity that was there to cause the split was there 30 years later. But it was still kind of like this, mm, yeah, I 
probably shouldn't go and try to worship with them mm. for their Wednesday evening service because of just the history yeah. of things. Yeah. It's interesting how you mentioned in that in that example, how many layers of denominational lines and other uh, sort of schism and split lines and what ones can be overcome and what ones can't, right? So you mentioned mm-hmm. that uh, in the community where where you had served, where I s- still serve, we'd had the tradition of three different denominational traditions partnering for vacation Bible school. And we could say for whatever differences there are in polity or emphasis between Methodists and Presbyterians and Lutherans, what happens in Bible school is common enough that we can work together mm-hmm. on that, even though none of us stopped being any of our traditions there. Uh, even and even though there are doctrinal and polity differences, and yet uh, a church that split off from your congregation that you had served, that still had in its roots at least a Methodist affiliation or, or Methodist background, whatever they even, eventually became, and yet that was something that thirty years later couldn't be overcome for collaboration. And yeah. I guess part of what this says to me is sometimes the splits in denominational life really are about different takes on strongly held theological uh, convictions or biblical convictions or even matters of polity that we think are so important that we're going to die on that hill. And sometimes those become excuses for, no, we just don't play well with those people. And over enough time, we sort of caricature or each sort of migrates into different directions when that didn't have to become something that was insurmountable, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, And I I guess one of the things that, that is, is, uh, eye-opening for me in our conversation here is that sometimes we like to tell our stories as denominations as always about pure and noble principles and that we took this ethical principled stand and this is why we stand alone for the truth when sometimes it was it was it was a lot more messy and political and and uh interpersonal and organizational than it was a stark, we are the bearers of truth and everybody else is, is mm-hmm. evil and heretical. And I, I say that as somebody who, as, as a Lutheran, sometimes would pick up the feel in our celebrations of, of the Lutheran Reformation as though the Lutheran Reformation was all truth was encoded in Martin Luther and his movement, and nobody had the light uh, you know, for 1,500 years. After Paul died, it was 1,500 years of darkness until Martin Luther was the sole bearer uh, when Luther himself would often you know, point out, no, he was just trying to be in line with Augustine, who's trying to be in line with, like, so that there's a long chain of people in between. Uh, but sometimes we can retell our stories and make ourselves the heroes rather than, it's not, it's not always clear cut that there's white hats and black hats, you know? So, so in my experience, so far, a lot, like a big hot button topic that I've experienced my entire time in ministry and the entire time I've been in the Lutheran church has been who can and cannot preach the gospel. Mm, okay. Um, right. Like, cause you know, we didn't have the technical split from Missouri Synod over the ordination of women. But yet that's what stops us from playing nicely together. Yeah. Um, In 2009, when the ELCA had a social statement saying that, yes, we will and do ordain gay and lesbian pastors and they can be in the committed relationships, um, a new Lutheran denomination was formed um, called the... uh, it's North the American NALC, and I don't remember what the N stands for. It's North American Lutheran Church. North America Lutheran Church. Um, and 
so the thing that split them off from the ELCA is that they don't want to ordain gay and lesbian pastors. Um, and since 2009, I have certainly been in synods who have had lots of congregations leave the ELCA because of that. Mm -hmm. But they didn't all leave in 2009 and 2010. Like it's been, yeah, yeah there was a big push then. But then since then, lots of denominate or lots of congregations have slowly left the ELCA and joined the NALC. But they don't necessarily say on paper that it's because of the 2009 social statement. Yeah. They'll often come up with other reasons that might have been a contributing factor but that may or may not be also tied in with we actually also don't feel comfortable with having the idea of a gay pastor. Mm -hmm. um, and one of those other reasons that is kind of contributing to it or that congregations will say is actually the main reason, whether it is or not, I'm <laughs> not in a position to say, um, but it's because they are having a hard time finding a pastor within the ELCA. Mm -hmm. And I think that this is a issue that's only going to get larger. Um, and that I don't think that this issue is only in the ELCA, but that there seems to be a lot of older pastors who are either recently retired or getting ready to retire. And there aren't as many younger pastors coming up to replace them. And so we're starting to see this thing that has been predicted now for like the last 15 years, but it's just getting worse and worse every year. That's called the great clergy shortage mm -hmm. of that. There just aren't as many pastors as there are congregations. And this is especially getting more and more challenging as congregations are shrinking, but are refusing to merge together <clears throat> to form a larger, more self-sustaining congregation that can support a single full-time clergy so like we're seeing lots of like you know this is a challenge um and so congregations will choose to leave a denomination if they are asking for a pastor and then not getting one sure. because there just aren't there isn't the pastor to give them or the only names and candidates that are being presented to the congregation are somebody who they don't want to call as a pastor because they're either a woman or they might be gay or they might be too liberal or like they just don't match the idea of what the congregation thinks that a pastor should be and so then therefore they leave the denomination and join another denomination in the hopes of well maybe this denomination can get me a pastor especially if they've been promised by whatever group is enticing them that it's so much better over here. We have pastors galore when it's really like, no, this, these are dynamics that are happening everywhere. So let's not pretend that there is some place that, that it defies the rules of inter, you know, of interpersonal relationships and, and, and organizational life as far as leadership development and all that. And, yes. and yet in so many areas of our life, not just in, in organized religion, it is always easier to, pretend that the the grass is greener on the neighbor's side mm -hmm. than to worry about watering your own lawn. Like it is always easier to just be jealous of what somebody else has. Man, if only I had that rather than I need to take care of what's mine. <laughs> the, the best example of the situation that I've ever experienced 
was when I was a student pastor serving in British Columbia. So this is Canada. Yeah. Um, and I was in the great north where there aren't a lot of towns and not a lot of people. Um, but there was a very small mining town a couple hours away from me, and they had a Lutheran church. And this Lutheran church was not the ELCA, but it's the equivalent in Canada. Mm -hmm. Um the Evangelical Lutheran Church in Canada, the ELCIC, so more alphabet soup. Um, and nobody wanted to go there. Like no pastor wanted to go up and serve this congregation that was less than half time and hours away from mm. anything else. And the only jobs available in this town was mining. So no pastor wanted to go there. This is not, should not be surprising to anybody. And so there was this very, like their council president was a woman and was very outspoken and very angry at the ELCIC about why can't you give us a pastor? Why can't you send someone to us? Yeah. And got really mad at the ELCIC. So she convinced her council to have a congregational vote to leave the denomination so that they could join the Missouri Synod mm. or the equivalent thereof yeah. in Canada. And, but of course, as soon as they did that, because they were promised a pastor, they, they sent a denominational rep up there to restructure the church to make sure that their policy was now in line with the Missouri Synod. And that included, you can't have women on your church council. So by her making and forcing her congregation to switch denominations, mm -hmm. she instantly lost all authority in that church. She could no longer serve as council president or on council. Um, and the only thing she could do is do the funeral luncheons and mm -hmm. teach Sunday school to children under the age of 12. Yeah. It's it's interesting how um, in a, in a previous episode, uh, in a maybe in an earlier series, uh, Erica, you had raised that question of uh, in in church life, how did we get to a place where um, church leaders had so much power and authority? And we sort of talked about mm -hmm. how to to move beyond a movement, you have to create an institution. There have to be rules for for leadership, and that there are upsides and downsides to any way of structuring or governing. Uh, a church. And we've talked before about you can do it all in one congregation, just be independent, but then you lose all the possible benefits of being connected to other churches. And then once you make the move to, we're going to be part of a larger body. There is a more congregationally driven kind of a polity where congregations make decisions mm -hmm. and they have to arrange and call their own pastors. And that can feel like we've got the power and independence at the local level, but also if no pastors want to come to that congregation, you start longing for, we wish somebody from on high would send us a pastor. But on the other hand, when you're in a, a, a polity that's got that sort of top down, you start chafing it. Well, we don't like these people bossing us around. Well, that's the same structure that can also appoint somebody to come and serve you. So it's, 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 sad to me but also a little bit like darkly funny how sometimes our complaints about our denominations we only like to see the positive of our polity and we get upset that the the other side of that same coin comes mm -hmm. from the the very same poly choices we've made so there are lots of lutherans who are upset with a you know denominational structure where uh there are bishops and things like that but it's that very structure that allows 
you know, decisions to be made that are helpful for them. And the flip side, sometimes people complain that their congregation, you know, is left to defend for themselves when they also would be fussy if they had to abide by the decisions of a bishop or uh, a higher up hierarchy. So <clears throat> the United Methodist Church is currently going through the same split that the ELCA went through over 10 years ago. Yeah. And we've got our own alphabet soup. We go from the UMC to the GMC, not the General Motors Company, um, but the Global Methodist Church. And you know, we're talking about this, you know, congregational polity versus a, a hierarchy and a, an Episcopal polity. And from what I'm reading and hearing, the GMC is, is looking to kind of kind of merge the two. Mm-hmm. But I'm really curious how that's going to work. Like, it, rather than just right now, my bishop says jump, and I say how high. Um, you know, I you're going to Winbur, okay? Like, I don't really have an opinion in that, and the church doesn't really have an opinion on me coming. Yeah. Um, where the Global Methodist Church, it almost sounds like, and, and they're still writing their polity. They're still getting things figured out. I mean, the Global Methodist Church officially launched on May 1st of 2022. It's months old. Yeah. Um, it's a baby. It, it's <laughs> a baby, baby. Like the, the Wesleyan Covenant Association, which has been around since um, early 2000, like you know, the, the 2010s, somewhere in that range, has been kind of like the the founding group that has led to the GMC. And that's just a toddler. Right. (laughs) So it's just a toddler in church life. So you got a toddler and a baby trying to come up with this polity where it sounds like you, you have kind of, you still have district superintendents. Like what we have now, they're just called presiding elders Mm -hmm. and you have bishops, Mm -hmm. but it's giving the congregation a little bit more voice. Like it's almost like, here's some options of pastors. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it's going to try to merge those two, which I'm curious to see how that works out. Well, yeah, because that sounds an awful lot more like our way of <laughs> doing pastors, right? Is I, like the 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 bigger body is matchmaker of like, yeah, uh, you know, every pastor gets a couple of congregation choices, and every congregation gets a couple of pastor choices, and then you have to decide. Yeah. who you'd be in a best relationship with. I, I was going to say, from what you're describing, I realize this is a broad brushstroke, but it sounds like you were describing what, what Sarah and I currently live with. So <laughs> if you'd like to know what are the what are the features and the design flaws to that, look at what we live with. <laughs> and there are, again, strengths and there are downsides. So it's, it's, it's not like uh, we, that we found the one perfect way. It's a hybrid compromise <laughs> between all, all hierarchy and all congregational. It, our polity is something like that. And it presents a whole host of challenges that in some ways is the best of both and the worst of both, you know? Um, For sure. Cause like you might not have freedom of like your current system of where you get to go, mm -hmm. but that there's a lot of strengths in that too. Like, you know, I, I see that as very limiting because that's not my, what my reality is. It's not what I'm used to. But I could also see like the benefits of it, right? Yeah. Is like you you kind of get to sidestep a lot of the um, you know, oh, we don't like this pastor in the sense that like so therefore we're not gonna work with them. Whereas since everybody's used to this system, it, it doesn't really matter if you do or do not like your congregation or your pastor because you just both know 
well, this is who, where we are for the next right. five, six years. So <laughs> we have to figure out a way to work together. And yeah. then when this pastor leaves, we don't have to wonder how long it's going to take for mm -hmm. us to get a new pastor, which you do in our system. Like yeah. there could be years between pastors. It's just like, nope, there's no in-between time. It's just the next pastor is here and we're going to get right back to work. And like, yeah. there's a lot of freedom in that. There's not those lapses yeah. between mm -hmm. ministers and like, and I mean, obviously, because the GMT is a baby, I mean, like, baby, baby, baby. They've, they've not had that, you know, what look, what this transition look like. Sure. You know, when a pastor retires, when a pastor moves, when, you know, something happens. So I have no idea what, if that's going to be like, if there's going to be that gap. Yeah. Um, Like what you all have in the ELCA, or if it's going to be like, the gap that we currently have about like two weeks, you know, mm -hmm. pastor moves out two weeks later, pastor moves in. Yeah. Um, so it, it, it's, it's very interesting to, to watch this all unfold. Um, it's interesting being a pastor right now, working with churches and making decisions where they're going to, if they're staying with the United Methodist church, if they're going to the global United Methodist, global methodist church if they're going to become independent um it's a it's a long process and i am working with my churches through that right now yeah and it's yeah it it's hard it's rough we've had some really intense conversations around it um and in my situation i'm pastoring four churches that are kind of yoked together as a cooperative and so that makes the decision all that much harder because they're like, well, what if one of us doesn't go? Yeah. So, so yeah, that definitely sounds like right now the conversations are, especially for your congregations, each of the, of each of the four are having the individual conversations mm -hmm. of do we stay or do we go? As well as like the body of all four of them together are probably also having that conversation of do we all together stay or do we go as well as i'm assuming that the clergy are having private conversations with their families and with themselves about well do i stay or do i go yeah and so like that's a lot of discerning all happening at the same time both communally and independently yeah. And like each individual church must make a decision whether or not they stay or they go. But they are aware that their decisions will then affect the rest of the cooperative. Right. Because three out of the four churches could probably not afford a full-time pastor on their own. One can. And so like if one of those smaller churches decides to stay or they're the only ones that go, then it's this whole idea of like, okay, then who do we get partnered with? Yeah. And I I know I I have an inkling of where I will land. Um I but I will say that where the cooperative goes does have some influence on where I land and when. So, you know, it's, it, it, it's very, it's a very interesting time. Yeah. 
to be a pastor, especially to be a pastor of new congregations. Um, that I I'm just a baby. Our relationship is still in that yeah. baby stage because I've only been here for two going like three months. Can I ask both of you to the extent you're you're willing to share sort of how you navigate these decisions and, and situations yourself? Um, it, you know, it, it sounds like when when the questions of denominational schism and splitting are are in our real lived experience, there's always a certain amount of that practical question of this is about me putting food on the table or my work or my livelihood. And there's some degree mm-hmm. to which it's it's very, very practical. But I'm going to guess there's also points. Uh, where you have to decide for yourself sort of at that level of conviction or principle, how do you decide what are the issues or places where this is, I will die on this hill. This is a, a, if we can't agree on this, I can't be in partnership with others. And what are the, how do you decide what are those kind of issues and what are the ones of, and we can live in disagreement on this and still be together. Cause I, I imagine some of the issues will change over the course of our ministry and lifetime and context. What are the flashpoint issues on any given day or any given era or whatever? Um, but what are the tools? How do we, how do each of you navigate and make those decisions for yourselves? Uh, what, what, what are your, your, your guideposts or what helps you to discern that? So, so for me, I know that at this moment I am an ELCA pastor and that's, if I were in a congregation that was talking about leaving the ELCA, which I have been a pastor mm-hmm. of a congregation that were, there were at least a faction within the congregation making noise about wanting to leave that I make my state, but my, my, where I am very clear of, I'm not leaving the ELCA at this time. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't want to say, never because I don't know what the ELCA will look like in 25 years well sure. when I'm still a pastor mm-hmm. like for all I know something major will happen and I will disagree with the theology right. I can't say but sure. right now I am ELCA I'm not looking to leave um I am willing to serve congregations within the ELCA or a partnering denomination that we're in full communion with that I disagree with on a lot of things like politically and um, I'm willing to be in that relationship. I have a hard time though, having now been in this situation, if a congregational council or a congregation tries to tell me what to preach Mm. and that because they think that what I am saying is too liberal when I'm just saying what Jesus said (laughs) like we're going to have issues at that point because if they're restricting what I can say the good news is Mm -hmm. then they are stopping me from doing my job okay and fulfilling my vocation and I know that my own mental emotional and spiritual health will suffer Mm mm-hmm and I'm only willing to do that for so long before I will probably be putting in my paperwork and leaving. Okay. Um, but I am willing to be in relationship with them, but they have to want to be in relationship with me. And that includes everything that comes out of my mouth. 
Okay. So in, in, in a way, it sounds like, and forgive me that this sounds like a Lutheran way of framing it, but like this comes down to, you can live with a lot of disagreement, but when it comes to the matters of the gospel itself, like what is it that makes the good news the good news? And if that's something that you feel you were being forced or asked to compromise on, that's a deal breaker for you. Right. Okay. And, and and that's not to say that if I know that they struggle with, we'll just go ahead and say the ordination of gay men and women mm-hmm. to become pastors. If they struggle with that, it's not like I'm going to stand up there every Sunday and that's going to be my message of, you know, that God can work through anybody. Mm -hmm. So why would you say that God can't like, that's Mm -hmm. not, I'm not going to stand up there and like beat that message at them every, every Sunday, like, no, but if it happens to fit the gospel lesson or like the, the sermon topic for that particular Sunday of God can work through everyone. I'm going to say, it. I'm mm-hmm. going to not avoid saying it just because they don't want to hear it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If that distinction yeah. makes sense. Okay. So, so that's where I am personally right this moment. Again, mm-hmm. that might change in 10 years. Who knows? Okay. I don't know who I'm going to be in 10 years. We all change and evolve. Okay. Okay. How how do you find yourself navigating the questions yourself, Erica, as you're looking at, like, it, it, I mean, this is a, a live <laughs> issue right in front of you that's both the very nitty-gritty yeah. paycheck I would like to be able to eat and put a roof over my head, but also where, how do you decide what are the here I stand, I can do no other kind of moments, and what are the, okay, we can find ways to work together kind of, how, how do you discern what, what lines are what? And and I will say, I'm, I'm a lot like Sarah. I, I can work with a lot of different people. Um, with whom I, I agree and disagree with on a lot of different issues. Um, Sarah and I have, have different un- different agreements about um, the, the main issue she brought up. Um, but like, I, I consider myself kind of a centrist okay. where I'm willing to work with folks. Um, what will make me possibly change denominations I, I, I don't know yet. Okay. And honestly, with having current parishioners that I know listen to us, I'm not real comfortable sharing. Okay, that's fair. Because <laughs> I don't want to influence them with upcoming decisions that my churches will be making sure. in the coming months. Sure, sure. So oh, not there... trying to avoid your you know your question, Steve, just like No, I I get that. That's fair. I, I guess what I'm wondering is like even like what is your th- thought process like? Like, what, what, are, how do you, how do you do the, the weighing of like, or what, what are some of the factors that help you arrive at decisions? Or maybe in places in your, in, in your past in, in ministry, how have you decided? Um, here's, here's, uh, how I decided this is a deal breaker issue versus here's an issue I can work with other people. I mean, like, even like, uh, you know, we, we talked earlier, we had three different denominations partnering for vacation Bible mm-hmm. school. What told you in your gut? that partnership is okay. We can be different denominational traditions there where other things might be no peers align. I won't cross. How, how do you, how do you suss out? What are the, what are the boundaries I I'm, I can step across and, and what are the ones that are more rigid? When we can come together and agree on the basics, like mm-hmm. when we work together with vacation Bible school, the whole point of vacation Bible school is to tell children and youth about the good news of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And that's usually 
you know, packaged in those major Bible stories that we all know that we can all agree upon that, you know, we all preach on that. That's, that's a no brainer for me. Like if we can all agree on, you know, who Jesus is, what Jesus has done for us, you know, his life, death and resurrection. Um, like I'll, I'll work with anybody. Okay. If you believe in that, if that's, you know, part of your core beliefs, I can work with you. Um, if there are parts of that that you don't believe, if you don't believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, um, I can be friends with you, but I don't know how well we're going to work together in ministry. Okay. Um, things like that. Um, I'll be honest, it's a little hard to work with people who don't agree with me being in ministry mm-hmm. as an ordained woman. Mm-hmm. Um, not saying I haven't. Right. It, it just makes that a little bit more difficult. Um, but I've learned from other female mentors and colleagues that just, you know, do what God has called me to do. And if they agree with it, fine. If they don't, well, then that's between them and God. Mm-hmm. That's not a me issue. Okay. Um, so things like that, like if we can, um, supposedly Wesley said, you know, on the essentials, unity on non-essentials, um, Diversity. Diversity. Yeah. Thank you for knowing Wesley better than I do. <laughs> I've heard it attributed to Augustine. So yeah, like the, the, it's well, a quote it, that's it, so good. It, like five people said it. <laughs> yeah. So like, that's kind of where I land, you know, okay. on, on the essentials of the faith. If we're, if we agree on that, I can work with you mm-hmm. on the non-selfific things. Um, you know, which human sexuality I would put in the non-salvific, not that it's not important, but like what I believe about, you know, what is or is not sin or, or who can or cannot be ordained. That's not a salvific thing. Okay. Um, you know, that has no credence on my salvation. So on so those we, kind of things, if we disagree, we disagree and that's okay. We have a, uh, the Lutherans tend to throw around our fancy word for for that topic that the things that don't relate to salvation mm-hmm. which is adiaphora those issues that are we can yeah that we we can live in indifference on that you can be mm-hmm. that basically you can be indifferent about or we can have diversity on and that the 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 full quote i've heard that you were starting there erica uh i've heard in essentials unity in non-essentials uh diversity in all things charity uh yeah. as the as yeah. the necessary mm-hmm. third piece which is a way of saying that even when we even when we disagree, even at the point at which we say we have to part company to do so in ways that are loving and graceful yeah. with one another. Um, and this is a, this is honestly, I think a challenge that we aren't always good at because when, when we get to the point of feeling like church bodies can't exist anymore, they have to split or go through schism. There's often so much hurt feelings or raw emotion. It's hard to be charitable toward mm-hmm. those that you are separating from or parting company with. Um, and unless you are willing to go the route of, they're 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 so far off the mark that they're heretical you have to be able to say no these are siblings in christ that we'll see one day in glory and even though we couldn't find ways to work side by side with we still belong in this wide you know diverse body called the body of christ and we may find ourselves awfully surprised in glory about the things that we were so absolutely sure we were right about that we were wrong about um and vice versa um there has to be that kind of humility and charity toward other people that we can even part graciously. And maybe that's kind of like where we started our conversation about that there are times when marriages end and divorce is the least worst option. And 
there are couples that model well how to navigate that and not to hate each other's guts, but for the sake of the children whom they are raising together, but not married anymore, they find ways to still care for one another and look out for one another because they have a sense of, I, it, it, I can't live with you. I can't share a household with you, but I care about you as a person and I can still wish you well, that kind of thing that maybe there's something to be learned from there in church life as well. Whatever we do, can we find ways to be gracious with one another um, and, and maybe not to be the ones who walk away that like the ones who are willing to say I'm, the door is open from my side. I, I think that's such a helpful illustration of how divorced couples who are still co-parenting mm -hmm. like they're still in partnership it's yeah. just that the partnership mm -hmm. has changed and a big part of my ministry for the past couple of years is recognizing and pointing out and living into how ministry is a partnership mm -hmm. that it's not just one person the you know the, the paid clergy person who does ministry, but rather we do ministry together. And it's only together that we can do ministry. And, you know, that that we is, you know, changes and is fluid as to, you know, if it's the pastor in the congregation, that, or even just the pastor and this committee on this one specific thing, or is it this pastor congregation and synod or these multiple congregations, these multiple pastors, like the we always changes depending on context um but even you know to to view that the splits of you know when a pastor leaves a congregation or the denomination splits into or the congregation splits into it's the changing of the we sometimes mm -hmm. but that partnership might change it might look different but we're changing it so that the ministry can still happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and that's like, that's something I've heard consistently with the split in the United Methodist church is like, we need the split so then we can go about doing the ministry that we've each side has been called to do mm -hmm. rather than just keep fighting over this issue and, and other issues. It's not just a human sexuality issue. There are other things in it. That's just the one that, you know, the news just grabs a hold of and, and runs with, but like, you know, that split is necessary. So then each side of the church can go on and continue to do the ministry of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. Um, in, in whatever context that looks like. So this has been a marathon conversation, and I want to thank both of you for your honesty and vulnerability and things you've been willing to share about these as very real issues that can sometimes feel like inside baseball, you know, the, the inner workings of church hierarchies and polity, but uh, th this is grounded in real life and real struggle. Um, despite the heartache and the challenges we are all still living with, each of us has still chosen to be in denominations rather than you know, lone, lone prophet in the woods or hermit in the cave or start our own religion. So in our final episode next time, we're going to sort of look at where, where do we see hope in the midst of this and what keeps us in structures like this for all the heartache that comes with it. Um, so we invite you to join us for one more conversation about honest hope in the midst of denominational struggle next time here on Crazy Faith Talk. See y'all. Bye.
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.